You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, race, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's show is about Cuba. The music you'll hear throughout the show was recorded on my recent trip to the island. I first fell in love with Cuba when I was 19. I was going to college and living in Brooklyn, New York in the early 1990s, and dancing was one of my main passions. I quickly fell into a wonderful community of Cubans, Brazilians, and New Yorkers who were training capoeira from Brazil, dancing rumba from Cuba, and playing Afro-Cuban bata drums for performance as well as for spiritual ceremonies. I listened to complicated stories of life in Cuba, the lack of food during the special period, which was a time of great economic struggle on the island, and stories of ritual, music, and dance in the Afro-Cuban religious community I was slowly getting involved with. I loved all of it and longed to experience life in Cuba for myself. Well, more than 20 years later, I finally made my first trip to Cuba just a few months ago. The trip was wonderful and also complicated, as I'd expected. I stayed mostly in Havana and spent most of my time talking to Cuban people I met on the street, on the bus, in markets, and in restaurant kitchens where I helped out. I tried to get a glimpse into the reality of life on the island and, as usual, into food in people's lives. I was surprised at how freely people spoke with me about what they thought about everything. The prevalence of Cuban culture was really strong, visible through the food, art, family life, music, and more. And the challenges of daily life were also really clear. While I learned so much in my packed but short time in Havana, I, of course, left with so many more questions and answers. I longed for someone to have a meaningful conversation with for this episode of The Table Underground, and my beautiful local community led me to Albert Laguna, who I'm really happy to have with me today. Albert is a Cuban-American scholar of the Cuban diaspora, Latino-Latina cultures, literature, humor, and the intersections of race and comedy in popular culture. He's an assistant professor of ethnicity, race, and migration, as well as American studies at Yale University. His first book, Diversión, Play and Popular Culture in Cuban America, will be released in July 2017. Albert, welcome to The Table Underground. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So our personal histories explain a lot about how we see the world and how we understand the world. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what your connection is to Cuba and to the Cuban diaspora. Sure, sure. So I'm a Cuban-American, born here. Um, My parents arrived to the United States when they were uh, 11 and 13, respectively. My father, 13. My mother, 11. My mother settled in Astoria, Queens, where there's a sizable Cuban community. But my uh, father settled in Union City, Hudson County, New Jersey, uh, this very large Cuban population, second only to Miami in size. Wow. Uh, I continue to have a lot of family on the island, in Havana, in Olguin, eastern part of the island. My family, uh, before coming to the United States, they were uh, farmers on my mother's side. And my uh, father's father was, my grandfather was a mechanic for the United Fruit Company. Hmm. So we know about the legacy of the United Fruit Company in Latin wow. America. So they came here, settled here, and... They met in New York City, dancing salsa during the, the 1970s when salsa was blowing up in New York City. Wow. They actually danced uh, and, and met at uh, La Casa Galicia. As I always grew up, I'd heard about La Casa Galicia, La Casa Galicia, a place for, for salsa dancing. And then I realized that La Casa Galicia was Webster Hall. So Webster Hall wow, in Manhattan. Really? So, and I used to live a block away from Webster Hall. So then I started seeing Webster Hall in this very different way. Like, yeah. This is where it all began. Excellent. So... You have gone on to become an academic and study Cuba and Cuban culture and popular culture. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a a historical background on Cuba just to frame the conversation, because I think a lot of people might have ideas about Cuba from watching I Love Lucy or from, you know, eating Cuban in a Cuban restaurant. But I think there's probably a lot of confusion about Cuban history, and it's really important to what's going on in the country today. Sure, I'll say two things. I'll give you this history, but I'll preface it with... You know, uh, a phrase that uh, a Cuban scholar named Gustavo Perez Firmat uses, which is the Havana habit. 
So every couple of years, the U.S. falls back into its Havana habit, and there's mm. an obsession with all things Cuban. And this extends back to the early 20th century, actually, right? Um, the Roomba craze in New York that was brought over by right. Cuban musicians, right, in the, in the 20s and 30s, which was really a song, not a rumba. Mm. You have um, the, the Machito and his Afro-Cuban all-stars, big bands in the 1940s, right? Salsa is a product of Cuban musicians and Puerto Rican musicians in New York, uh, combining Afro-Cuban rhythms, right? Right. Uh, so there's a long history of U.S. obsession with Cuba. Uh, sure. Ricky Ricardo is certainly part of that, and I love Lucy. <laughs> uh, but a, a brief history of Cuba, you know, let's start from the very beginning. So Christopher Columbus arrived on the island in 1492, and the island was populated by various indigenous groups, including Tainos and the Sibonese, among others. Cuba was a colony of Spain until 1898, and during that time produced a great deal of wealth for that country, chiefly through the export of sugar, and the U.S. was a main sugar market for Cuba. Right. Much of that Cuban sugar was refined in Brooklyn. Right? Yes, I've been there. Yeah. It's pretty intense to see the yes, sugar. the Domino Sugar the, Factory. Yeah, and the, the ships with sugar piled inside and bees swarming and people mm -hmm. shoveling sugar. Mm -hmm. I had a friend mm -hmm. who worked on one of those ships. It's pretty intense. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. The so Cuba in the, in the 19th century was one of the top trading partners of the United States. So it was in the top five trading partners. It's incredible yeah. for such a small place. Yeah. Right? Um, but this wealth generated through sugar is, uh, is built on the backs of African slave labor. Yeah. Estimates range from 700,000 to 800,000 slaves taken to Cuba, mostly from Western Africa. And that's double the total number of slaves brought to the United States. Yeah. So little Cuba, double the number of slaves brought yeah. in um, when compared to the U.S., in 1898, Spanish-American Cuban War comes to an end. Cubans had been fighting for independence from Spain off and on in the 19th century. And just when they were closing in on victory, the U.S. intervened with the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. Social studies. Remember the Maine, yes. right? Uh, though this was not the result of Spanish foul play, it was used as a pretext for invasion. Uh, the U.S. military remained in Cuba until 1902 when they left after Cuba had accepted the provisions of the Platt Amendment. So why am I getting into the nitty-gritty of the Platt Amendment here? Um, well, the Platt Amendment is why we have the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. Mm. So 1902, a provision for uh, a coal station was put into the Platt Amendment, and we still have that naval base today. From 1902 to 1959, the U.S. continued to flex its muscle in Cuba through a combination of military and economic imperialism. Cuban politicians and business oligarchy often colluded with the U.S. government to extract profit from, from the Cuban people. In 1959, Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution come to power, but Cuba will again become dependent on another superpower. So not the U.S., but the USSR, Soviet right. Union. When the USSR collapses in 1990s, Cuba was hit extremely hard as the economy essentially tanked in a couple of months. Right. Ushering in what Fidel Castro euphemistically called a, quote, special period in times of peace, marked by all kinds of shortages. In 2006, Fidel Castro hands over power to his brother Raul, who begins to implement economic reforms in an attempt to boost an economy that has yet to fully recover from the special period, and that's still true today. Mm. On December 17, 2014, the U.S. and Cuba formally reestablished diplomatic relations under Presidents Raul Castro and Barack Obama. You are all caught up. <laughs> <laughs> It was pretty intense when I was in Cuba to see, like, I knew about this history, more or less, maybe not all the dates and details, but understanding the sugar industry and the wealth that had been there. And then when um, Castro came in, then a lot of the very wealthy people fleeing to Miami and kind of the communist um, system that was put in place to kind of equalize wealth among people. And it was really powerful to see that in person in terms of looking at buildings. Like, I... I'd seen, you know, pictures of Cuba, but walking around in certain areas, many areas where there were just mansions all over the place that are now crumbling and the people living in them are not wealthy now. Mm -hmm. But to see like the the carcass, you know, of what was the what I imagine came from the sugar industry and the rum industry and, and the wealth that came out of that and that came out of slavery there was just sort of overwhelming to see it. It wasn't just one little neighborhood. It was large parts of of the city and i mean what what is your feeling when you're there how do you see those buildings in that well i have a lot of reactions when i see when i see those uh buildings first i i get 
I tense up because uh, often among tourists, there's a romanticization of right. these buildings that are kind of falling apart, the art of the ruin, right? Right. And I always remind people gently and not so gently at times that people actually live in those buildings. Right. There's actually a joke in, especially in old Havana, where a lot of the buildings are very, very old and tremendous states of disrepair, that you can tell a Cuban anywhere in the world because a Cuban walks in the middle of the street because you're trying to avoid things falling <laughs> things down falling from the on your head literally yeah. uh so it's it's what you're seeing now is you have you have like a mansion like you said like in the vedado neighborhood right? right which yes it's sugar yes it's rum it's it's also farmers cattle people it's people who had connections with u.s corporations who are making money um you know the vedado neighborhood when the nicer neighborhood is in havana those buildings if you walk in there are still otis elevators mm. put in there in the 50s wow <laughs> right yeah uh so it's essentially built also with kind of u.s architecture in mind u.s businesses we're building right we're we're influencing how these uh buildings looked right uh but today you'll see these mansions and then you know one that's falling apart and then next to it one that is in fantastic shape and that is a product of the changing economic situation in cuba where people are receiving remittances and investing money into these older homes to refresh them and to rent them out as uh, Air, like B&Bs. Uh, so it's really incredible to see that. You're walking down the street and one is falling down and the one next to it, very similar architecturally, has had, has had money invested into it. Yeah. And when you say remittances, do you mean family sending them money from outside the country? Or? Yeah. 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 It's a major part of the Cuban economy. Yeah. There's something like $3 billion a year in remittances. It goes, and, and we can talk more about this, how this affects food, especially in the sense that... Um, Cuba's had has seen Havana especially has seen an explosion in, in private restaurants. Yeah. Um, because under Raul Castro there've been some economic reforms to try to make small businesses um, easier to set up. The problem is there's no startup capital. You can't go to the government and ask for a loan. So right. if you want to start a small business, you need mon- hard currency yeah. from abroad. Right. Mm-hmm. So to understand what you're talking about, you have to also get into the fact that there are two currencies in Cuba. So you have the original Cuban peso, or not, I shouldn't say original, there was probably much older money, but you have the Cuban peso that's used um, by the Cuban people that is what they get paid in from their jobs, and then you have the kuk, um, which is the tourist money, but that is also used by Cuban people because it's worth a lot more, and I'm wondering if you can give us a little more information about that, because that was one of the most complicated things about being there is, is understanding these two economies essentially that are yes, functioning it, on together. It's extremely complicated. It's so complicated that the Cuban government has been wanting to unify the currencies for years. Raul Castro especially has been talking about unifying the currencies and they haven't been able to do it because of the fear that it would just cause economic chaos. So it's yeah. really, really complicated. Um, the dual currency system begins in a special period in Cuba, a special period time of great shortages right after the fall of the Soviet Union, Cuba's number one trading partner. and um, So people essentially didn't have food to eat. They didn't have other there was tools, no electricity, other, right. no food. Yeah. People like the caloric intake was dropped in half for most pe- for for people, right? right. The everyday Cuban, it was, it was a disaster. It was a catastrophe, right? A really, really difficult time to be living in Cuba. Uh, so, all of a sudden, hard currency becomes necessary. People are trading in dollars illegally. The Cuban government had outlawed the dollar, but people are know it's more valuable so that's what's becomes the coin of the realm so finally the cuban government recognizes this and they legalize the dollar and they open up dollar stores so foreigners and um, family members visiting from abroad would go into these dollar stores pay in dollars and it was a way for the cuban government to kind of recoup hard currency they could then use um to pay debts to, to buy stuff whatever on the global market um so is that what eventually became the kook? Yes. They so, then turned it into their yeah. own currency, which basically is more or less equal to the dollar or the euro. Yes. In 2003, the kook was pinned to the dollar, yeah. right? Uh, you know, it has no international value, right? The right. kook only works in Cuba, but it's pinned to the dollar in 2003. And the kook is 25 times more valuable than the peso, right? right? And what's happening is, especially in the cities, the things that you need, that you really need, will be priced in seuse, in kuk, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you're a government worker, you're getting paid in pesos. So an average Cuban worker makes $20, $25 right, like when two. one's converted from pesos right. to dollars. 
but you're still paying like what you'd pay in the U.S. for a lot of products, yeah. right? It's not that much cheaper. Yeah. So you can imagine there's a huge gap there. Um, and people who have access to hard currency who work, for example, in the tourists, if you're, if you're a doorman and you're opening a door at a hotel and you get a nice tip, right? $10, that's a huge, right. huge windfall. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like half your monthly salary almost. Absolutely. Yeah. If you were yeah. working for the government. I mean, as an example of this, one of the things that shocked me. So when I was on my way to Cuba, I was trying to understand transportation because I, w- I want to get around. I don't have a lot of money. Like I travel on like a shoestring. And I was trying to figure out how to get around the city or even get out of the city. And I talked to some friends who were from Cuba or who had traveled to Cuba recently. And they explained, and I read a lot of stuff online. So there were basically three different easy types of auto transportation. So there was the taxi that was a tourist taxi, which is essentially going to be like $10 for a ride. Then there were the colectivos, which were like the collective taxis used by Cubans, which was going to be um, one kook, which was as a dollar, essentially. Or you could take the bus, which was one peso, which is like four cents. Mm-hmm. So I took the bus everywhere. <laughs> but, but that's just an example of how the same thing to get from like one neighborhood to another neighborhood can cost you anywhere from four cents to ten dollars for the same ride. And you could see that in food also. Like I thought, oh, I'm going to Cuba. I'm going to I'm going to buy some great coffee and bring it home. It was like $13 for like a little bag of coffee. And I didn't even know if it was good coffee. <laughs> but I was thinking, how are Cubans buying this? Because talking to people who worked in restaurants, which was a lot, I, I went and spent a lot of time talking to people in the food industry. And the waiters were telling me that they were making 250 pesos a month and that they weren't even allowed to work more hours. Like it was regulated for them to work that much which i was sort of wondering if that's true well it would depend on if are they state-run restaurants or are they were they the paladares which are the private right restaurants um some were paladares and i don't know about the other ones yeah Yeah. if they were state-run restaurants there are probably regulations about how much someone can work i do know that there are often regulations and then like what happens in actual life (laughs) so i imagine if you are a a server at a restaurant especially at a privately owned restaurant you're figuring that out with the owner and yeah. people are are figuring things out as they need the business owner and the employees yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so in terms of people making money they have either government regulated jobs that are paid in pesos and then what how are people surviving like what are the other ways aside from being a doorman or getting a tip in kooks how are people making enough money to get by yeah so um if you're working for the government in Cuba and you're making the average 20 to $25 a month, uh, you must have a side hustle. And many, most people have some kind of side hustle. Otra entrada, another kind of entry, right, of, right. of, of money. You know, some people have side jobs, you know, as innocent as I'm a teacher. I will tutor on the weekends mm-hmm. or teach English to um, people who can pay in, in Jose to supplement my income. You know, that's very innocent, but then you have people who are, you know, engaging in illegal activity out of necessidad, out of necessity, right? So, you know, the person who steals materials from state-run enterprises and then sells them on the black market. So you steal a, you steal a sack of flour and then sell it to a private restaurant, right? Um, there's a huge black market in Cuba for, for food and, and goods more broadly. So it's that spectrum, right? People are finding ways to... Uh, to uh, the word is resolver, right? To figure things out as as they need to. Yeah, like to resolve. To yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, some resolve. It's yeah. the primary verb in Cuba. Resolver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that and people saying that they want more opportunity. That was what I heard from from like every young person I talked to. So yeah. yeah, I mean we can talk I and mean, we can talk about young people. It's it's, it's sad. Cuba is one of the oldest societies in the world, right? Uh, and part of that is you know people don't want to have uh, kids in, in a tough economic environment where it's mm. so difficult to get basic goods. Um, but also people leaving, young people leaving. Right? right. So since Raul Castro has taken over, he's implemented uh, economic reforms and he has this tagline for his economic reforms called sin prisas, pero sin pausas. Without hurry, but without pause. Mm. Those are, uh, that's how the economic reform will, will develop. Now imagine you're in your 20s. Sin prisas, pero sin pausas. Without hurry, right? But it'll keep going. Right. You're young. You want 
things to happen right? right so people lose patience and i think the saddest part in cuba is um you have a very highly educated population but nothing for these people to do once they get their educations yeah. often right so people you turn the light bulb on and then it's just it's on <laughs> and there's nothing for them to do with the skills they acquire often mm. or the skills they acquire let's say you're an engineer you're a civil engineer and you go work for the government and you've studied for years you have a master's and then you can't make enough money to support your your family or yourself right. so it's really difficult yeah, it was really surprising to me. I, I was talking to people and they would say, oh, I'm a graphic designer or I'm an engineer or other things. And I'm thinking, where are you working? Like where I'm not seeing evidence of, of that type of work very much around. And I was in Havana, so I was in a city and not even in a, a rural area. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the thing about people being highly educated, it's a, there's a 100% literacy rate in Cuba. People take their education very seriously. It's also a very safe country. People told me it was safe. I'm very smart in terms of walking around by myself as a woman traveling alone, but I was just, I felt incredibly safe there walking at night, talking to people. And um, it's only in the very touristy areas where people are trying to kind of hustle and get something from you. But once you're away from those areas, it was just pretty impressive as, as a country to travel to. Um, probably one of the safest places I've ever traveled anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. And I was really struck by some of the things that are amazing in Cuba literacy, <laughs> safety. In certain ways, people have basic needs, even though they're still struggling financially. And there were things about the culture that um, families were just so tight. I mean, in contrast to America, where often kids are just leaving home as soon as they can, don't really want to hang out with their parents. I met a 28-year-old, a waiter, who his, he, his 28th birthday was the next day. And he was like almost in tears that his father had just left the country to come gotten a visa to come to America and I can't imagine a 28 year old American <laughs> young man heartbroken the way this young man was that his father was not there to celebrate his birthday with him and so there were things that I felt were super valuable about what has been created and retained in Cuban culture and then not to like glorify or idolize it very real struggles that people have in their lives yeah i think my so i just went with a group of 18 students uh to cuba for two weeks and i have students who would you know consider themselves you know leftist in their politics and i also had students who would you know consider themselves more on the right of the spectrum and they all have preconceived notions about what cuba was going to be and my favorite um, experience as a teacher was watching them all look so confused. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got there with this idea that Cuba, socialist utopia, people on the left. And wow, this is actually more complicated, right? right. And then people on the right who just wanted to kind of knock Cuba as this totalitarian dictatorship that hasn't done anything good for its people were also taken aback by, wow, I have to kind of reassess, right? right? Um, uh, so, you know, in, in the case of the, the family stuff, it's a lot of that is in Cuba, people have to rely on each other. Yeah. To, to live, right? You have to have networks in order to get what you need to make connections. I'm not trying to, to uh, you know, make it seem like people aren't warm and they're just using each other in a very pragmatic way. But there is a sense that we have to work together to, to live in, mm -hmm. in addition. And that creates bonds of affinity and, and love. Right. But another thing you see is people live together because there's nowhere else to live. Cuba has really big problems with housing shortages mm. and that's another reason why the birth rate is low is that you know you get married and there's nowhere to move there's you just there's, <laughs> there's no, not much privacy <laughs> there's not much privacy and there's nowhere to there's literally nowhere to like start your own kind of family right. it's or it's very difficult to find housing but you know this all creates networks it creates relationships uh, for better for worse yeah <laughs> often yeah i appreciated i mean what you said about the the reality of life there mm -hmm. and you know seeing the good and the bad and and all of it together is complicated. It's, it's complicated Very it's really complicated, complicated. so for me because i absolutely love food among other things one of the things i was trying to figure out when i was there was how does food work in people's lives and Unlike m almost every other country I've traveled to, I found it much more complicated to figure out because there, there were some agricultural markets like large farmer's market 
type things. And there are tons of little storefronts that have different kinds of food, um, little bread shops, stores that have food like up on shelves behind a counter, stores that have shell have food sort of in cases. But it just there were so many different kinds of stores and and food was kind of separated out. And there was it wasn't like you went to a grocery store where you could kind of get everything you need in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really confusing. I was there for a week and I spent most of the week just trying to navigate and understand what's different about this bread store than that bread store. And how are people affording these things? And what do you understand about the the food system in Cuba and how people are getting food in their daily lives. Yeah, it's 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 really complex. So um, Cuba imports over seventy five percent of its food, right? So Cuba is not feeding itself despite having plenty of farmland, right? So there's some major issues with feeding the population, right? So you know you have a bunch of different ways to do that. People who can pay in 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 say say in cooks for 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 often very high quality stuff. Uh, if you have access to hard currency and in the cooks, you can get pretty much what you need when you need it. Right? There are often shortages where you can't find what you want, but when it right. does arrive, if you're paying in top dollar, you can you can get that stuff. And then you also have the markets that. Um, that are subsidized with the ration book, like state subsidized, but often the quality of the stuff is very low or if even it, it might not be there. You might say it's time, according to the ration book, for me to get um, fish. And there's a famous phrase in Havana, pollo por pescado, fish, uh, chicken for fish, because there's no fish available, so you yeah. get chicken, right? And There was very little fish. Almost everywhere I went, it was surprising. And I could see that the chicken there's a lot of things imported from china frozen chicken mm-hmm. lobster other things and also um apples and you know agricultural things that don't grow in cuba that were imported from the southern part of south america where there's a cooler yeah. climate um yeah t- let's talk about the ration books a little bit because that i was trying to understand when i was there so people get a monthly ration of food they literally have like a little book i'll put some pictures up on on the tableunderground.com mm-hmm. website but they have a little paper book where it's written in how much they can get of different items. What kinds of things are people getting in their rations from the government? Yeah, so the, the ration book has changed, um, especially in recent years, as Raul Castro tries to make it so people are less dependent on the state. But it still exists. People get uh, rice, a rice ration, beans, white and brown sugar, eggs, potatoes, a daily piece of bread, protein, usually chicken. Right, cooking oil, but this is never enough to to, to live on. bed one one's uh, months uh, monthly needs. Right, right. It's, yeah, I think it, they get like five eggs a month, mm-hmm. and they get more sugar than anything else. Like the amount of sugar they're given versus things they actually need to eat is yeah. shocking. Well, that sugar needs to go in the very sweet Cuban coffee. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 not enough. Uh, and often you'll go for your ration, and it it won't be there. Right. Mm. So you know, people joke that. They haven't had beef. They don't remember what beef tastes like right. <laughs> because they're just, it's very difficult to find beef yeah. in Cuba. You'd well, somebody that, had told me that the cows were really being kept for dairy. And so that yes. very few cows are being killed for meat. Yeah. So the, the idea is the Cuban government wants to kind of, a more sustainable protein source is milk. But there is this kind of obsession with beef in the Cuban national imaginary. Yeah. Uh, so... It becomes like a status marker. It becomes like uh, almost a fantasy. People want to have beef, and it's just it's especially since it's so hard to get. Right. right. Um, so there, I mean, there's well, and so it's many part jokes. of a classic dish, the ropa vieja. Is- ropa vieja. Yes. I mean, before the revolution, people ate a lot of beef in Cuba. Yeah. Um, often people with more money, but there was a lot more beef consumption. Right. So there's like a memory of beef. Yeah. In the Cuban. Um, I was actually told by someone, and I didn't know whether to believe this or not, that people could go to jail for four years for killing a cow, and someone was telling me a story of where. They would like lead a cow in front of a train so it would get hit by the train and then they would get to have the cow because they didn't technically kill it. And, you know, that was pretty shocking. Yes. Um, I, I don't know exactly how many years, but if you killed the cow and you were not authorized, you could definitely go to jail. Yeah. Um, th- these things have become part of uh, the kind of mythology around sure, cows. right? Sure, but yeah. I am. I've heard stories of people leading cows into... Because a lot of the cows kind of roam freely, right? Um, leading cows into like uh, 
dense vegetation and taking care of business right there mm. slaughtering the cow and then selling its and selling yeah. its parts illegally mm. so it's it's not enough the rations are not enough and people have to kind of figure it out beyond that yeah and i also found it interesting that there's no fruits and vegetables in the rations right those are people are either growing them which i didn't actually see almost anyone growing food in the city of havana they're growing flowers and things but i guess the farms that are on the outskirts one woman who worked in a in a produce shop was telling me how bad she thought it was that people didn't have enough fruits and vegetables and they had so much sugar and she was like then the government will pay for my diabetes medication <laughs> but not yeah. for me to have fruits and vegetables which is shockingly similar to america uh-huh. and and what we're doing to our population here it's diet. it's it's um it's it's an issue fresh vegetables and and fruit um can be difficult to find especially vegetables so you have farms on the outskirts of havana that produce Cuba has a larger problem with just kind of feeding itself and farming. And a, um, a big part of that is people don't want to work on the farms anymore. So you have, and this is global, people right. moving from the countryside to the city. But a main issue is farmers in Cuba now can make a lot of money, especially if you're selling to the tourist sector. Mm. There are people who are selling for, for high-end paladares, which are these privately owned restaurants. But um, the issue is if, if you're going to start a farm, first of all, you have to have the know-how Right. You have to have capital and you have to have the supply chain. Right. Which can be very difficult. Transport is a main issue in Cuba. So, you know, one day you're ready to harvest and ready to send the products to market. But then, you know, the old Soviet truck breaks down and you don't have the parts to fix it and everything spoils. Right. Right. So it makes it very Yeah, transportation there was really tricky. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge tourist industry in Cuba before any Americans Absolutely. started going there recently, which I was surprised to see how large that was, that there were whole islands or areas that were basically just hotels, just foreigners staying there, which was, I had no idea that that existed. Is a lot, now that the American tourism industry is increasing with the relaxing of regulations, is more food being diverted away from the people and into the tourist economy? So it is a high priority of the Cuban government and people who have hard currency to feed the tourists because the tourists are spending money, they're filling up the hotels, they're bringing that much-needed hard currency, right? So, yes, materials are being diverted to major cities and to the tourist um, locations. And, I, I mean, I can tell personal stories from my family that live, you know, 35, 40 minutes from Havana mm. and how they have money to buy stuff, but when you go into the into the stores, there's nothing, right? And right. They say it, and it's it's pretty common sense. Supply and demand. The people who can pay the most, right? Even though the government's trying to institute price controls, right, for agricultural products, there's still that black market, right? People are getting around that they want that hard currency. Um, so resources are being diverted for the tourists, and uh, ordinary Cubans are seeing prices go up, mm-hmm. and um, less variety and less items on the shelves. Yeah. So one of the things I found surprising was bread, all the different kinds of bread shops in, in Cuba. And when I, I found this one bread shop on the outskirts that had like actual really good kind of crusty whole grain bread compared to the kind of light fluffy bread. And I brought it back to the kitchen where I had been cooking with some people and I brought them, it was like a multigrain baguette and they thought it was disgusting. <laughs> they, they, they were like, this is gross because they were used to this other bread. What This mushy bread. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The bread in Cuba is... Um, People will talk about how bad the bread is. There's, a, there's a, actually a, the most famous comedian in Cuba named Pamfilo. He has a show called Vivir del Cuento. It's the most famous show in Cuba. It's a sitcom comedy. And he started his career with a long monologue about bread in Cuba and how you get the stale bread. And the daily bread is actually the bread from yesterday. So it's mm. like wordplay about this stuff, right? And you know, a big issue um, with the bread is state-run stores will have... Uh, flour disappear from the shelves um people will will take it or there's not enough and take it and sell it so the quality of the bread is is not very good um across the board uh it's it's funny um i remember orienting my students to our our trip and they said they were all very excited about the food in cuba and i explained to them that they would probably be disappointed in a lot of ways because access to high quality ingredients is is quite difficult i remember so one student, it was her birthday, and we wanted to get her a cake. And we got her this phenomenal cake, but it cost us 18 kooks. Wow. So 
imported ingredients, right? Stuff from abroad, and they're making great stuff, but you're paying a premium for it. Right. And again, it's for upwardly mobile Cubans. You have increasing class divisions, right? And for tourists who can afford yeah. it. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, I had read a lot and talked to people who said, you know, when you go, the food is not what you expect. It's not going to be that great. And so I sort of had lowered my expectations of what it would be. But I did expect to be able to get rice and beans as like a basic thing, maybe on the street or in restaurants. I was shocked that like almost every restaurant I went to did not have beans like as a kind of sopa de frijoles, like a mm -hmm. bean soup as a side dish. They would have con gris where it's like mixed, like a few black beans mixed with some white, you know, rice. cooked with some white rice. Mm -hmm. But just that basic thing of like rice and beans that I couldn't find beans in almost any restaurant that I went to was really surprising. Yeah, it, it could be that. I mean, it's still a staple, but maybe when you were there, it was tough to find beans, right? Just things kind of ebb and flow in, yeah. in materials. But that's the kind of situation people are figuring out, even at the restaurants, like what is available and what can we make and what can we sell, right? Um, so it's you have some restaurants that are very good, very, very, very expensive. Um, but for the most part, the food is just not good because, again, most of it is is imported stuff right yeah. you know most of the chicken in in cuba well i won't say most i don't know the exact percentages but a lot of the the the, the chicken comes from the united states mm. right but these, this wow. isn't like organic prime cuts no. of chicken yeah. like there's a joke in havana that um the, the chickens in cuba have four legs because you never see chicken breast they're getting the cheaper uh, the legs yeah. right they're not getting the chicken breast yeah. as much so um you know it's a major issue like I said, you have this educated Cuban population, right? And they're using their skills for this new market where you can sell your know-how for businesses, etc. So computer programmers and app developers have created something called Alamesa, which is a kind of Cuban Yelp, right? Directory of restaurants in major cities. And it is a gorgeous app. It is beautiful. Any, it rivals anything you see mm. made in Silicon Valley, right? With a listing of all the kinds of restaurants and... You know, with this app, you can see how, I've been following it for a couple of years now, um, how the Cuban food scene has shifted. Mm. Right? And, and the absolute explosion in Havana of paladares, mm -hmm. privately owned restaurants. That yeah, there's tons of them. Catering towards the tourist class. Yeah. Right? And there are a wide range, too. I mean, some of them are not so expensive. Some of them are expensive. And the food, is a, it's a very wide range. Sometimes you feel like you're sitting in someone's living room mm -hmm. that's kind of been made to look more like a restaurant and sometimes you feel like you're sitting straight up in a restaurant and there still is someone living in the back but it's Absolutely. just so separate that you really don't notice so definitely a range i did find a few wonderful things like the sugarcane juice i forget guarapo, guarapo. that was amazing <laughs> that was amazing yeah yeah and they i've had i had had that in brazil many many years ago but what i loved in cuba is that they had it when the juice is extracted, they have a, a tray of ice on a strainer so that it's running through the ice. So it's cold and frothy where I've had it before. It's like hot and kind of syrupy. And mm. I love the cold version. No, it's really <laughs> good. I, a little bit of rum, even better. But <laughs> I mean, the issue is it's not a lack of know-how. It really is a question of just a lack of quality resources. ingredients yeah. and resources. Yeah. I had one of the best meals in my life at a, a small organic farm about an hour outside of Havana. It was incredible. All the, the produce was organic, you know, picked from the ground right there. Uh, the day we ate it, everything was was cooked and, and made there. It was fantastic. Yeah. Right? But again, because of the supply chain issues, because of access to, lack of access to high quality ingredients, importing food, it's difficult to produce um, uh, quality meals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are gems, but it's, it's definitely tricky. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the embargo in terms of now they're actually buying chicken from America. I didn't realize that was, well, happening. The, the embargo is it's, it's never been a total embargo. Right. So, um, actually the U S is one of the top trading partners with Cuba, hmm. right? <laughs> the issue really? is, uh, under the Cuban embargo, the U S cannot extend credit. So anything that Cuba buys and food is one of the categories that's allowed. Cuba can buy food from the U.S. has to be cash on delivery. So that's why you see a lot of Republicans from the Midwest, the breadbasket, who want to open up, who want the embargo to come down despite their party affiliation because it would mean another market. It's important to dispel that myth because people think it's, it's a yeah. complete embargo. And I, I do want to emphasize that the embargo has real effects uh, on the Cuban economy. 
It's yeah. definitely a detriment to the Cuban economy. But it's actually, it's more complicated, the relations between the U.S. and Cuba than, you know, ice cold, cold war, right? Yeah. Everything in Cuba is more complicated Everything than we thought it Everything is more complicated. And also more beautiful than sometimes we can imagine, <laughs> so... So another really powerful thing about Cuba is the racial diversity and the different cultures that are mixed into life there through slavery, through the, the indigenous people who were there, and then the European culture that came. And this manifests in food, music, everything else, um, as well as who has wealth and who doesn't has, have wealth. And I know this is something you've spent a lot of time studying. So I'm wondering if you can give us some idea of how race and maybe also money and power play out in, in Cuban life today. So let me answer that in relation to kind of the contemporary moment with a little bit of history. Afro-Cubans historically have been the underclass in Cuba. And when the revolution came to power, it was a revolution for the underclass. Not just Afro-Cubans, but generally people who had who had been on the, um, the tougher side of things, right? Let's say it that way. Let's put it that way. Under um, past dictatorships, Batista, Machado, etc. Many of these Cubans of color. So um, the idea was we'll lift these people up. So under the revolution, Afro-Cubans have uh, increased education, more money. They've, things have gotten better across the board, right? That is without a doubt, right? Especially you see this going through the 80s. What happens? In the 1990s, the economy tanks, right? And all of a sudden, access to hard currency becomes the most important thing to start new businesses, to live, right? What does that mean? Remittances come from people from abroad. And most of the Cubans who have left Cuba are white Cubans, right? right. And they weren't all um, rich Cubans. Often there's this idea that every Cuban who left the island left, you know, a sugar plantation behind. You know, in 59 to 61, there was a large contingent of people who had a connection to the dictatorship and were very rich and saw their class um, status threatened. But after that, 65 to 73, middle class, lower middle class. Um, 1980, we're already in the revolution. 1994, next wave. It becomes less and less wealthy, right? The people who leave. But still white mm -hmm. because the revolution was for the underclass, right? Afro-Cubans right. especially. So now you have people sending remittances to their family in Cuba and their family is often white, right? So Afro-Cubans on the outside looking in to this major engine of the Cuban economy, which is now remittances. So if you want to start your own business... You want to redo your home and make it into a bed and breakfast. You need money from outside. That's right. And yeah. that comes from family members often. Right. And these family members are white. Right. So Afro-Cubans are, again, find themselves on the outside looking in. And it's, it's very sad. And the government knows what's going on. But given the precarity of the, of the economy, there's not a ton they could do. They, I, I could imagine they could make loans available to Afro-Cubans especially. Um, but there's no money to do that. Right. It's intense to see it. I mean, coming from America and economic and racial disparities here, and then also knowing how strong the Afro-Cuban community and culture is there, and then seeing some of that poverty replicated there in a similar way as here. So while the Cuban government, when it came to power, the Cuban revolution came to power, it said, we're going to get rid of racism. So they put in structural reforms, right, to to get rid of institutional racism, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, racism among people still was, you know, it was incubating, right. right? So when you see tourism really take off, starting in the 90s, you see discrimination. You still see it today. So right. you're, you're not often going to see an Afro-Cuban, you know, working the front desk. It's going right. to be a fair-skinned person right. or as a server at a restaurant, even a private restaurant. I've seen ads for servers asking pretty much for a white person to be to apply, mm. right, in, in a not-so-coded language. So while the government has tried to kind of erase these boundaries and, you know, in the mid-1960s, Fidel Castro proclaimed that racism was over in Cuba. He had taken care of it in four years. Um, so uh, it kind of blunted conversations about this issue. But now you're starting to see more and more people kind of engage with it, talk about Afro-Cubanness and issues relating to Afro-Cuban communities in a way that you couldn't do before the 90s, especially. Yeah, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but looking at the Cuban money, the peso, and looking at the people who were upheld as the leaders of the revolution, were 
they mostly look like European white Cubans, not, I mean, when you look at the money, I was like, who are all these white guys on uh-huh. this Cuban money, Cuban <laughs> you know, revolution. and, and from the revolution. And so there's, there's getting rid of like systemic racism, institutionalized racism that perpetuates racism. But it's also, as you're saying, like who is actually in power. And even in the revolution, it, it seems like most of the people in power were white or light skinned. Yeah, you know? there were, there were Afro-Cubans in positions of power, but if you look at like the Cuban Communist Party and the most powerful people, it's it's mostly white men. Yeah. White Cuban men. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was really amazing to me being in, in Cuba was the prevalence of the Afro-Cuban religious tradition, Santeria, which is part of my personal family life through the Yoruba, the West African tradition. Um, and I knew a lot of people involved in the the Orisha tradition in Santeria in New York City but seeing it in Cuba where it is just it's not hidden right like it's just out in life people have their beads on they talk about it they say oh my father's a babalao my wife is this Orisha that Orisha and it's um it was really powerful for me to see that as just such an open part of life versus a really hidden part and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about has it always been that way were there times where religion was had to be more hidden or how has that been historically? yeah throughout the history of Cuba there have been moments of of uh racial panic right um and this stems in large part from you know cuba gains its wealth in the 19th century after the haitian revolution so haiti becomes uh an independent republic black first black republic in this hemisphere in 1804 right yep and all of a sudden haiti was the most um was the biggest sugar producer now cuba became the biggest sugar producer but it also created a panic throughout the hemisphere the United States and across Latin America, the fear of another Haiti, right? So often the, the, these moments would kind of um, would build up and there would be harsh repression against. So the fear was Afro-Cubans. of black people rising up, rising overthrowing up like the, the yeah, ruling yeah. class. Yep. Major, major concern. So there have yep. been a number of moments of backlash from, from white Cubans throughout the history uh, on the island. And um, people would... Uh, form secret societies you know that's something that's interesting about cuba that's different from the united states the slave system so in in, in the cuban context spain uh, allowed for what are called cabildos which means that um afro-cubans um slaves were able to organize around their ethnic mm. identity so that's why we have this continuity in ethnic traditions from africa and cuba was people were allowed to kind of organize Stay and maintain together. those traditions right whereas in the united states that was people were specifically yes. separated and families were destroyed to weaken Absolutely. their them. to weaken those yep. links right yeah. so this happens in cuba and you know secret societies are formed abaqua right right um you know the the relig- santeria religion is is based on um you know, Western African, West African religions combined with Catholicism, syncretic right. connections. Um, so it was a way to hide the Afro, you know, we're practicing Catholicism here, right? right? right. That <laughs> um, part I knew and has been, has been very much part of how the West African traditions have survived through all yeah. the Americas is that yeah. they hid under Catholicism, under Catholicism. or Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty open in now, Cuba yeah. now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. You know, there was, uh, um, under the revolution, the, the position of, you know, we're atheists. Right? Mm-hmm. People always practice their religions. Um, and uh, But it's definitely become more visible um, yeah. in, the, in the last couple, in the last decades. Yeah, it was, it was exciting for me, though, just to get to see it just be part of people's lives mm-hmm. versus something that's sort of hidden and repressed. And it was... A joyous thing for me to get to to see that in Cuban life. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I appreciate it. I went to visit the um, there's a Yoruba Orisha museum near the capital in Havana, and what I found really powerful was that there clearly was a lot of research done about each of the Orisha. Like there was a, a sign of at each one, and there was a ton of information about every specific West and Central African people that specific traditions came from so it wasn't just this whitewashing or blackwashing of this is just you know african (laughs) it was like this is from the this is from togo this is from the yoruba land this is Igbo. this is dahomey like all these different peoples and to me that was just you know communicates a respect for very specific 
groups of peoples in Africa and doesn't just say this is African. And so those kinds of things I felt through in a number of different ways and I thought were really distinct from what you ever see here. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's a long cultural memory and, you know, to understand the differences between Cuba and the United States, it's just necessary to historicize, right? The differences in, you know, starting with these kind of cabildos where people were able to kind of maintain these traditions um, and just the sheer number of people that were, were taken yeah. to Cuba, right? So you have a new book coming out, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your book. It's being released in July of this year. Sure. The title of the book is uh, Diversion, Play in Popular Culture in Cuban America. And um, the book's origin story. So... I remember getting to grad school at NYU and sitting in the library and reading um, materials on the Cuban-American community and race and ethnic studies more broadly. And I remember being struck by how um, depressing it all was. <laughs> There's a certain, you know, and histories of oppression, histories of deracination. You understand why that is. But it struck me that um, the ludic, the playful, was an incredibly important cultural mode that was being... Um, uh, not talked about enough in scholarship. So my book is an attempt to kind of recapture the place of play in popular culture, look at stand-up comedy, festivals, internet memes, etc., etc., to think about what these playful cultural forms do. Mm. The second thing I'm trying to do, the second big intervention, is that you know when people think about the Cuban diaspora in the United States, they still have this 60s and 70s generation, the Cuban exiles in Miami protesting in the streets against... Fidel Castro in support of Elian Gonzalez, etc. Um, but things have changed pretty radically in the last 20, 25 years. Since the 1994, over 600,000 Cubans have arrived from the island. And mm. these Cubans are very different from those who arrived in the 60s and 70s. So my, um, my book tries to understand the shifts in the Cuban diaspora politically, um, economically, connections with the island through the lens of popular culture. Well, I'm really excited about your new book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank and you. I, thank you for joining me today and for talking about all this. It's, it's really interesting to learn more. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. You can check us out live every other Friday at noon, again at 7 and Sundays at 3 on WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Streaming online as well as at thetableunderground.com. You can find our podcasts at iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcasting sites. And there's a lot more information, writing, recipes, photos, and a lot more on our website. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for the latest info.